I grew up without cable or satellite. Living out in western Oklahoma, a basic TV antenna only got you one thing, PBS. PBS stands for Public Broadcast Station. It's a government-funded educational television initiative that's gone on for years, ever since early television. My favorite show on there was The Boomafoo, an educational animal show starring a lemur puppet and his friends, the Crap Brothers. There's all sorts of other good stuff on there too. Sesame Street, Between the Lions, Dragon Tales. While all my friends were watching Spongebob, I grew up on PBS. I don't watch much of it today, but I'm constantly inspired by someone who played on the station just a bit before my time. His name is Mr. Rogers, and his show was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I don't know if you've seen the show, so let me describe it to you. Every day, a tall, skinny man would walk through the door of his house, taking off his business clothes and putting on a sweater and sneakers, singing that it was a beautiful day in the neighborhood and hoping that you would be his neighbor. This show, by most people's standards, is slow. He spends a long time just talking to the young kids on the other end of the camera, speaking about feelings and growing up. He has puppets in a segment called The Land of Make-Believe, but they aren't like the Sesame Street puppets who weren't yet invented. They were rudimentary, wooden, simple. It violates all the standards, both of the time it was created and by today's measure. That's why I love it. Back in early black and white TV, the only kids programming was stupid stuff, pies in the face, clown type of stuff. Fred Rogers thought it was awful and thought that the news programs bringing images of violence into the household could harm children's development. He created something and he set out to create something that would be slow, that would seem as though he was talking directly to children and it would be meticulously researched. He talked with a child psychiatrist before every single episode, going over the scripts, making sure they would help children and not harm them. In the end, he not only crafted something that children loved and responded to, despite being slow, but some of the most important televised work on self-care, emotional intelligence, and empathy ever created. His act of care, his dedication to his craft, even in the face of normal convention, inspires me constantly. It also crafted a generation of viewers and showed just what this strange new medium could do. This is Intro to Mass Media. I'm Daniel Thompson, and today we're talking television. In 2014, the average person your age watched 18 and a half hours of television each week. A critic back in 1987 wrote, Television is the pervasive American pastime. It is the single binding thread of this country, the one experience that touches young and old, rich and poor, learned or illiterate. America never had a unifying bond. Now we do. Now it is possible to answer the question, what does America do? We watch television. This reality has fueled questions about the quality of what we spend our time consuming and the impact it has on our lives personally and the world at large. Right now, we're in what many are calling the golden age of television. Critics see television programming as superior to the movies, more engaging than books and radio, and the primary entertainment medium, even in the face of an all-ruling internet. Super Bowl ads cost millions of dollars each, and as far back as 1990, networks paid as much as $3.6 billion to show NFL football in the first place. Business is booming. What does that mean for us, both as consumers and producers? Today, we're going to talk about three main topics in television. The first will be the business side of television, 
was like to own and operate a station. The second will be a focus on televised news, since we're broadcast journalism majors after all. Finally, we will discuss the internet that is fueled and competed with TV through streaming websites on the one side and YouTube on the other. Stick around. So what jobs exist in a television station? So you have a couple different departments. You got sales, programming, production, engineering, traffic, promotion, public affairs, and administration. So there's a couple things you need to know straight off the bat. So stations are the individual places that send out a signal. Those signals go to TV, right? But in addition to these stations, you also have networks. A network is something that produces uh, content, generally a major collection of both content and stations. So like ABC is a news network, but ABC owns probably like hundreds of individual stations that broadcast ABC stuff. So getting into it from, from the get-go, you have a sales department. TV makes money through advertising. Advertising sales are what keep the lights on at TV stations. You've got national and local advertising. So a company like McDonald's will send out their ads to stations all over the place, all over the country. But also, like, so, uh, so a station in Oklahoma City will be playing a McDonald's ad that was produced over on the East Coast, right? But there will also be Oklahoma City businesses that want to run just on the Oklahoma City stations. So those are local ads, and they come in too. So that's the sales department. The programming department selects the shows that you will see and develops the station's schedule. Network-owned stations, normally in large cities, are called O&Os. Stands for owned and operated. O&Os automatically carry network programming. So ABC, again, owns a bunch of stations that just play ABC stuff. Affiliates are stations that carry network programming, so they'll still play the ABC stuff, but they're not owned by ABC or by any other network. The networks instead pay them to carry the programming, and then the networks sell the ads and keep the ad money for themselves. An affiliate is allowed to insert a number of local ads into the programming, and then the affiliates get to keep that money. But overall, the ad revenue stays with the network, and the affiliates just get paid to run it. Because affiliates can make money on network programming and don't have to pay for it, many stations choose to affiliate themselves with the network. When they aren't running the network stuff, affiliates can run their own programs and keep all the advertising money they collect from them. Some of the nation's commercial TV stations operate as independents, though. Independent stations have to buy or program all their shows, but they also get to keep all the money they make from advertising. So independents, like, they tend to run a lot of stuff that either they make or old stuff. That's called syndication. So let's say that a TV station wants to run The Andy Griffith Show because they don't have enough time to produce all the shows that go on their own station. So they decide they're going to run the Andy Griffith Show. They have to go to the people who own the Andy Griffith Show and pay for that. That's what syndication works like. But in that case, they get to keep all the ad revenue. So there's a trade-off. <laughs> you can either keep the ad revenue or you can get paid to put the shows on the air. But you don't get to choose what shows go. The production part department makes the programs for the station. 
So you have a whole department that if you have original shows on the station, they're going to be the ones that make it. They're also going to make all the local ads. So the people actually doing camera work, actually doing editing, any local news programs, that's all done in the production department. The engineering department helps make sure all the technical aspects of broadcast are working, so that's antennas, transmitters, cameras, any other broadcast equipment. The traffic department makes sure that all the advertising gets put where it's supposed to go and that the companies get billed. It's a lot more administrative in that way. The promotion department advertises the station itself uh, through billboards, radio, local newspaper. And then the public affairs department organizes public events, such as fundraisers. This is all the type of stuff that goes down inside of an individual station. If you're interested in owning a station at some point, you're going to need to decide, do you want to run a station that's owned by a network? Do you want to be completely independent and to choose everything that goes on? Or do you want to be affiliated with a network, get paid to run their stuff but not get to choose what goes on it? All this stuff is a question for anyone who's looking to get into original TV programming. So now I want to move on to TV news. TV news is a curious animal. It took most of its inspiration from radio news. Back then, uh, a person would just narrate the news on the radio, and so that's what they did on TV. A news anchor would just sit behind a desk and talk to the audience reading the news, and the camera would just stay on him the whole time. It took a lot of time before news people realized two important things. People liked seeing them, as people, and they could also show images, both pictures and video, of news events happening. So you've got this researcher named Ron Powers. He's done a lot of really solid research on mental health history, but he also put out a book called The Newscasters, talking about the transition from radio to TV. And this stuff is interesting. I've got a copy of this book for anyone who wants it. He talks about what makes TV news so different from other types of news, and he points at speed and personality. So, uh, news published in magazines and newspapers can often be very lengthy. A writer can go into a story deeply, really picking apart the pieces and explaining it in a thorough way. This is valuable because many stories are complicated and difficult to explain quickly. Further, in written news, the journalist tries to keep themselves out of the picture, emulating this kind of news style of writing that generally isn't unique to them. You can often pick up a newspaper and the style of writing between one newspaper to another won't be that different. They're trying for a specific type of generic news style that's formal, it's concise, and it gets the point across quickly and clearly, but not so quickly that you lose any detail. So again, this creates a formal document which effectively explains current, effect, current events in a detail that leads to understanding. Powers argues that TV creates a different sort of situation. Because people can change the channels easily whenever they get bored, and they see TV primarily as entertainment, they aren't willing to listen to long-winded explanations of the news. So news anchors keep it short. They breeze through stories, sometimes at the rate of 30 seconds to 2 minutes per story. That's no time at all. While these anchors should be given the benefit of the doubt as to the quality of the news, they have to simplify it heavily to ensure that it fits into their allotted times and so that people don't click away. 
this can be rough for stories that are complicated. Further, as TV programmers realized that they could show things on screen to correlate with what was being talked about, visually appealing news stories began to take precedent over unappealing ones. So imagine this scenario. Um, a newspaper puts out a lead story. It's got to put a story on its main page. So it puts out the one that it sees as the most important to the city, a new tax increase proposed by the city that's going to raise everyone in the city's taxes. Several pages later, you know, stories from there on get less and less important. You have, say, an apartment that was damaged by a small fire. So the tax increase will likely affect the most people. The fire affects a lot fewer people. So that's how the information is arranged. The most important stories come first. Impact in TV news, however, means visual impact. You won't have great footage of a tax increase. What images would you even show? Like, at best, you might be able to get some lawmakers voting or a picture of a stack of papers. It, it's going to be boring. The footage of the fire, though, at the apartment is going to be awesome. It's going to have motion, chaotic energy. Basically, it's going to be good television. And so, more time is devoted to it in the TV news. Furthermore, because the anchors can be seen as real people, whereas they were invisible in newspaper and radio, the audience started to like seeing their personalities. Anchors started hosting as teams so they could react to one another, have conversations. They could banter, they could joke around with each other. Audiences liked this, and it increased the entertainment value of these news broadcasts. It didn't do anything, though, for the quality of the news. This isn't to say that televised news is bad or even inferior. There are fantastic news programs. We've talked before about how there's a fine line, a tug of war, if you will, between entertainment and the quality of the news. In TV, entertainment is a much stronger foe. Many, many people, especially in generations a bit older than us, still get their news almost entirely through the TV. We can argue about the impact of that, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's impossible to argue that there is no impact from this approach. When that's the one way that people are getting their news, we ought to pay attention to the ways that it's formed, to how this form, being able to see and listen at the same time, a picture and audio, what does that do? How does that impact the way we perceive the events that happen around us? I'd argue that it's a substantial impact and one that as you all progress and get into your, your broadcast, video, news classes, I hope it's something that you'll keep in mind. What are you doing to ensure that people are getting the news that they need, the information that's going to be important to their lives? News is a public service. A lot of newspaper people in, like, you know, in the print industry, they see it that way. They see it as a public service. People in TV don't necessarily see it as a public service. And that's what I consider it to, to be in terms of the danger level. I think the danger is you can entertain without actually helping people. So now that I live on my own, I still don't pay for TV. Instead, I stream. I've tried out just about all the big streamers, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Peacock, even did a free trial of HBO and watched a little bit of my buddy's Disney+. So just as soon as I get a spare minute, I reckon I might even try that CBS one and get all that sweet, sweet Star Trek content I've been missing. But these things seem to be popping out of nowhere. There are so many now. 
You got Shudder, it's like a major streamer of horror content right now. The Criterion Collection is one that focuses almost exclusively on like artsy stuff. Movie is another one, really curated cinema-y stuff. I'm a bit of a, a film boy, so I don't get a lot of, I, I get a lot of ads for stuff like that. At one point, when there were just a few, streaming was basically just syndication. The streamers would pay to carry all TV programs and movies, and, and they'd make all the money off subscriptions or advertising. Nowadays, though, the game's kind of changed. Streamers are now producing their own content, and lots of it. When our textbook was written, the Netflix show Daredevil was coming out for the first time, and it was only the 17th Netflix original show. Now. They produced 1,500 original programs. Last year, they put out 371 originals. That's more than one new release per day, and more than the entire TV industry put out just a few years before it. Now, streamers compete with TV originals and with each other. So Netflix and Amazon are pretty standalone, but we're seeing these other bigger companies starting to make their own services. HBO, that streamer, that's owned by Warner Brothers. Peacock is owned by Universal Studios, who also owns NBC, which is producing its own content. Disney Plus and Hulu are both owned by Disney, and Disney owns Fox and all the Fox television stuff. And CBS is owned by Paramount, which also makes its own movies and has its own TV stations. These places are ripping back the content that they originally syndicated so that they can put it on their own streaming services. And now, it's getting to where there's almost too many streaming services for people to reasonably subscribe to them all. It's a fascinating problem for TV, as TV has always been. TV has been run by advertising for so long, but streamers run mostly by subscriptions. It's a different type of revenue flow, and it means that individual shows don't have to be successful as long as people subscribe or keep their subscription. People like me have begun going without TV, and instead just using streamers. And these streamers are competing for our business. As a result, it's unclear what will happen to TV in the, in the traditional broadcast sense moving forward. Will it all be internet broadcasts in the near future? Will there be these massive channel bundles like there have been in the past? It's really too soon to say. Even as streamers put the hurt on film studios and TV studios, they rely on their programming. Netflix original content is often not that great. I mean, some of it is, don't get me wrong. I watch a lot of Nailed It and I, thought The Five Bloods was like the best film out this year, but they still need TV and movie studios by and large to make them the sort of content that everyone really wants to watch. The major question mark as this industry continues to evolve. So what does that mean for us as producers? It means that these streamers putting out like so much content means that there's a more demand for content than there has been. TV's always put out a lot of stuff, but now there's even more potential stuff. And what that means for us is that if we put in the time to make some good stuff, we might be able to sell it to streamers. It might be a, a less of a barrier to entry than it has been in the past. There's more room for diverse voices, for sure. Netflix has really pushed diversity and are looking for things that kind of hit smaller audiences than in the past. Used to, a hit show had to reach everyone, but now a hit show only has to reach a certain demographic of people. If it can keep those people subscribed, it's worth it to the streamers. It's something for us to keep in mind. Now, people like my brother and my in-laws, they don't even use streamers. They do all YouTube for everything. 
we're probably going to talk about YouTube a lot next week. Uh, that's, but like, this is how TV has become an every person's game. You and I can produce shows that can have advertising and an audience, and we don't have to pay anyone for it. There's no barrier of entry there, and people are entering it a lot. Every minute that passes, 300 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube. There's more content produced by everyday people like us and major corporations alike than has ever before existed. Just like book publishing, news spreading, and radio have all found themselves in the hands of the people, so has video, this TV alternative. The question of whether these massive companies will be able to stick it out when all media has been democratized is a question I can't wait to find out the answer to. Is there going to come a day where people just put out the content that people watch? Or will these major companies stick it out? I really don't know. To wrap up today, let's talk about the project for this week. Every film and TV project has to start somewhere, and that somewhere is a script. Scripts lay out the story and dialogue of a movie or TV episode using a specific format that was originally borrowed from the theater. These scripts are sometimes commissioned by studios making the content, um, and sometimes they're made by people who will go on to direct that content. A lot of directors write their own stuff. A lot of the time, though, they're written by screenwriters, people who make their careers out of writing for TV or film. Sometimes these people write screenplays without knowing whether it'll even get made. They're just writing them out of the hope that they can sell them to studios. These could be completely original works, or they could write episodes for shows that are currently on the air. These works are called spec scripts, and this week, you'll be writing one. So here's the gist. You're going to, this week, write a 10-page spec script for a TV show that you love. It can be one that's still on the air, or one that's ended its run. It can be for any show at all, as long as it's a scripted show. So, on average, when screenwriting, one page equals about one minute of screen time. So the average screenplay for a 45-minute episode of a show should be about 45 pages long. That means you have a choice to make. Your screenplay is required to be at least 10 pages, so it can either be a very short episode of your favorite show, like a 10-minute episode, or you can write just the first 10 minutes of a full-length episode. Proper screenplay format, let's talk about that. I've provided some example screenplays on D2L. I've got a couple different ones. I've got Blackish, I've got Pose on there, um, I've got Atlanta. These are just some shows I, I grabbed off the internet. You can Google any screenplay. You can like Google any pilot for any show, and by and large, there's a PDF out there of one of the original screenplays. They're also out there for movies. Like They are so out there. There's tons of them. Pick one out, whether it be ones that I've selected or one that you find on your own, and uh, take a look at it. There's a couple things you're going to notice. Each scene has something called a scene heading that describes the location of the action. Then there's a paragraph or so. It's followed by paragraphs describing what the action is. And then all the dialogue is put into the center. So there are programs like Keltex or Studio Binder that can help you create proper formatting. It's easiest to write these on a laptop, and in that case, I recommend Studio Binder. It's got tutorials and instruction, makes it super easy. You will want to write using the traditional format for screenplays, including the style of language generally used. 
Again, the sample screenplays will be helpful in determining what this style is. So again, a spec script is a script that's written before the writer is paid for it. These are pretty common in television, where screenwriters will pitch an episode of a TV show they want to write for, and will put together a script for the episode to sell to a TV studio. Again, any TV show, it can be new or old, current or canceled, writing an episode for it. So, did you, was there a show that you loved that got canceled before the story ended? You could write your own continuing episode. Or if you hate the way the creators wrapped up an, an ending to a show, you can fix that in your own. Or you could just write any old episode. Like, as long as it's original, you have free reign to do what you want. It can be your own thing. Just don't type out the plot of an episode of that show that already exists. So don't go in and pick the pilot episode of the X-Files and just retype what they're saying. You invent the story using the characters and situations that already exist. Why are we doing this? Writing spec scripts can be a lucrative business. Plus, our campus participates in a screenwriting contest every year across the state that your piece could be entered into, bringing you all sorts of power and fame. Media projects almost always start with scripts, and practicing this skill here can help you to propel your own projects to the starting line in the future. So, using these programs, type it up, and either pop it up on your website or send it as a PDF uh, to me on D2L. The choice is yours. Here's how I would get started. I'd go back and watch a few episodes of one of my favorite shows, whichever one I wanted to do, and I'd write down the different types of scenes that there are. Look for the patterns. Take, for instance, The X-Files. Almost every episode begins with something strange happening. A monster attack, some mythical event taking place. If I were to write an episode of The X-Files, I'd want to follow that pattern. Shows tend to have very specific patterns sometimes. And sometimes, you know, there are different types of episodes. Some shows are made to be watched completely in order. Like Lost. You can't watch Lost out of order. Other shows, like, I don't know, The Big Bang Theory, you can watch that in any order that you want. It doesn't really make that big of a difference. The X-Files has some of both. The episodes that contribute to the big overarching story are called mythology episodes. And the episodes that you can watch out of order are called Monster of the Week episodes. Figure out which kind your show does and see how that might impact your storytelling. Where do you enter the story? Does the show often use cliffhangers? Are there tropes or trademarks to each episode, things that happen each time? Like how in Phineas and Ferb, someone always says, hey, where's Perry? This research stage will be very important. And all you have to do for it is watch TV and take notes. So, pretty fun. After that, check out one or more of the screenplays I've uploaded for you. Pay attention to the writing style. Jump into one of these screenplay apps. Again, I recommend Studio Binder for computers and Keltex for phones. And start trying to emulate those styles. Do not try to write this in Google Docs or Word. It will look awful. Finally, map out what you want to have happen in your episode and start writing. I am thrilled to see what you come up with. On Thursday, we will have a tutorial of this assignment, but there's not a lot to learn in relation to the apps. You are more than capable of this. Just have fun adding to the world of your favorite TV show. We are almost to the end of the original medias. I am very excited to continue working through all this with you, and I think this will be an excellent way for us to dip our toes into television. Y'all got this? Congratulations, by the way. You made it over the hump. I will talk to you all again real soon. If you have any issues at all, contact me through email, through Remind, or on Zoom. Take care, you all. I'll talk to you again real soon.